appreciate that, Jim. Thank you. First Peter chapter one. Um, if you're uh, if you're new here and or haven't been here in a little while, we we began studying the book of First Peter a, a few weeks ago, and um, I, I'm just I've just been challenged and encouraged in so many ways throughout this book. It's a convicting book. It's a uh, it's just a it's a book that's pertinent to our times. He's speaking to those who are living in a culture where they're they're not welcome as those who are following Jesus. And uh, they're facing some, some challenges and some persecution, and more is coming down the, the, their way here in the coming years as Peter's trying to prepare them and, and help them understand what it's like to live uh, with hope as exiles. And so he's just finished, the first 12 verses, he's just finished unpacking the, the glorious salvation that we have in Christ and how that impacts the way we live. And what happens here now in, in verse 13, this is a, a key transition point that launches us into the rest of the book. Everything he is going to say throughout the rest of the book of 1 Peter has to do with, uh, like, this, this is the, the foundation. This is our salvation foundation through which all the other exhortations and challenges that uh, he's going to lay forth, they're rooted here. Um, From here on out, these exhortations will be rooted in grace. God wants, and this is the pattern in, in New Testament letters, we're called to obey out of a loving relationship that's rooted in the gospel. Theologians say indicatives before imperatives. That is the truth about who we are in Christ before we get to the, the to-do list or the challenges, the exhortations, without the promises of God, we discover that commandments crush us. That was what, what the Old Testament was to reveal, was those commandments, Paul says in Romans 7, were good and just. The law was a good thing, but we couldn't do it in and of ourselves. We needed a new heart, and we needed the Spirit of God to empower us to live holy lives. And so Peter understands that, and he's about, throughout the rest of the book, to give us some of those exhortations, but he wants us to know that the foundation lies in our changed heart and life that only comes about through the grace of God. And so as we uh, think about what is uh, what this section is going to say, I'd like us to read verses 13 through 21, and then we'll look at some of these commandments or these exhortations that Peter gives us. He says, beginning in verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, so you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
So as Peter gets ready to give us these commands, we see that word therefore in verse 13 that points back, as we mentioned, to this foundational glorious salvation that provides the basis for what he's going to say here going forward. And so the first of these commands I wrote down is to be ready. To be ready. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. He tells us here that our minds should be ready to go. Different translations may say this uh, slightly differently. It's because there's a, an idiom here in the Greek that points back to a, a, not just the Old Testament, but to a very important cultural uh, uh, practice. If you have a King James Bible, or you, you're reading the literal Greek here, it says, for them to gird up the loins of their minds. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to modern, modern day readers. But you've probably heard this before. Uh, they all wore robes in those days. Men and women, kids alike, all had robes. And so if you wanted to do any strenuous activity, if you wanted to really to run or if you were out doing heavy labor, as you can imagine, robes don't allow for a lot of flexibility of moving quickly. And so what they would do is they would bunch up that robe and then they would, they would pull it between their legs and tuck it in their belt. Their, their girdle, if you will, and that would allow them, they would, their, their bare legs would be shown, it would be almost like wearing a diaper, and they would be ready to go. They could, they could do that. In fact, just, out of, just for an example, in one of the places, you, you see this several times in Scripture, but in 1 Kings 18, 46, it says, The power of the Lord was on Elijah, he tucked his mantle under his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's, that's the practice. And so, what Peter is trying to communicate here is that he said, just as if you need to be ready to take off on a race, if you need to be ready to uh, go out and, and do some, some hard labor, some work, I want you in the same way to take that spirit of, of the way that you tuck your robe in and you get ready to go. He said, I want you to approach your faith in the same way. He said, I want you to have a mind that's ready. And it's interesting that he points to the mind and even sort of um, gives a, a, second, uh, a second phrase here that, that further pictures what we're supposed to be doing with our mind when he says, be sober-minded. Th that is, now he's not specifically talking about drunkenness, although that would be true as well. But he says, I want you to, to have a mind that's clear, that's focused, that's undistracted. These two pictures picture somebody who's ready to go. In, in fact, some of these same Greek words are used in that picture of that, the parable that we looked at towards the end of summer about the, um, about the virgins who are, uh, who are ready and waiting for the bridegroom to come. It's the same picture of this, this readiness. You've got your bag packed. You've got your go bag. You're alert. You're paying attention Scripture talks about this over and over again where we're told to be watchful, be ready, be alert. And here he says, I want you, have, you to have your minds ready for action. The Christian life is one of action. It's one of alertness. We're supposed to do away with anything that lulls us into carelessness. The other day I was... Like Friday, I was driving back from Ann Arbor, and we were in some, uh, some 
I could see traffic backing up ahead of me, and so I was uh, applying my brake and slowing down, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and I could see the guy behind me was looking down, I assume at his phone, and he was not uh, slowing down. And that's kind of a disconcerting feeling when you look in your rearview mirror and you see that, that someone's going at a much higher rate of speed than what you are, and your foot is on your brake. You can't, there's not a lot of room to go somewhere, and I'm just, I don't even know if I had time to pray, but all of a sudden in that moment I saw him look up and I heard his, bra- his wheels, you know, screech, and I thought, man, thank you, Lord, that he looked up in time. Because I don't, I don't know where I was going to get away from him. But he was not driving with an alertness. He wasn't paying attention to what was going on. As Christians, we're called to be ready, to be alert, have our minds focused. Now, I, I think there's all kinds of things that we could say about that. What, is, what does that mean for the Christian? I think it, it's, it talks about having our, having our minds filled with truth. Being aware and alert to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say in specific situations? But there's also an awareness that we go through life daily, just in in this alertness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, asking God, what do you want me to do here? How do you want me to engage here? That These Christians were going to need so much wisdom, and we do in, in our context, to know how to live in a world where we're increasingly marginalized. We need wisdom to know what to say and when to say it, what tone in which to say it, how to live and and how to love well. He says, Christians, be ready. How about you this morning? Do you feel like your mind is alert? Do you feel like, and I'm not talking about like if you had enough cups of coffee here. I'm not talking about an actual sense, but I'm talking about spiritually alert. Are you spiritually alert to what God is doing in and around you? Are you spiritually alert to the the needs of fellow believers? Are you spiritually alert when you go out and you're surrounded by unbelievers, whether it's at work or at the the sports fields uh, or at 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 the local restaurant? Are you ready and willing to be engaged to share your faith? Have your minds ready for action. Be ready. Secondly, he says, be hopeful. Be hopeful. I love this this exhortation here in verse 13. He says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, I want you to take your hope, and this is, this is an, an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's in the imperative tense in the Greek. And he says, I want you to take this hope. And we said uh, last, or one of the first weeks that, that hope is, a, is an important phrase for Peter. He mentions it three times in this chapter. He mentions hope in verse 3 when he says that we've been born again to a living hope. He says here in verse 13 to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And then in verse 21, he says your faith and hope are in God. Hope is an important concept to Peter. And remember we said that hope is not about this sort of uh, uncertainty like we use it today in the English language. Like, I wish this would happen. I, I hope that the Lions win today, or whatever it might be. It's not this, this uncertainty, fingers crossed sort of a thing. It, it conveys a strong sense of expectation, strong enough even to act on the basis of this expectation. And then the word fully just adds, adds even more to this picture where he says, I want you to set your hope with this very confident, very eager expectation in the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. 
And this hope is anchored, this hope in the future is anchored in something that took place in the past, in Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection, according to verse 3, gives us this hope, gives us this great confidence. And so he says, I want you to take this confident expectation, and I want you to put it fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we get grace. You and I receive grace every moment of the day. God's grace is revealed to us. We've talked about this. We've received grace in the past through Christ's finished work upon the cross. We receive grace day by day, moment by moment. Every breath we take is a gift of God's grace. But here, Peter specifically says, I want you to set your hope fully in that grace that is a future grace that will come to you, that will be revealed when Jesus returns. All of the glories of our salvation converging, and as we see Jesus, our Savior, face to face, and enter into his glorious presence, Peter says, I want you to have this awareness this alertness that means you're setting your hope fully there. Not a partial hope, not a partial trust. But I want you to be all in. Put all the poker chips on this one here. He says, I want you to set your hope fully upon the grace. See, what, what I think Peter realizes is that when our minds, uh, Paul says it in um, Colossians chapter 3, the first couple of verses, when he says, you are seated in the heavenly places and have your, have your mind where Christ is. Like, when we live with a hope that's anchored in what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do, it's not a hope that will be shaken by present circumstances. When we get roughed up for the cause of Christ, or when we get battered through trials, like Peter talked about in verses 6 through 9 already, Our hope is not going to be shaken because they weren't anchored. That hope was not anchored in the temporal stuff of life. It was anchored in the truth. It was anchored in the hope that will be revealed to us in Christ. Part of the epitaph on John Owen's tombstone says this, While on the road to heaven... His elevated mind almost comprehended its full glories and joys. They said of John Owen that his heart and mind were so directed to the glories of these, his future reward, his future grace, that it's almost like he got it. <laughs> it's almost like he understood what was coming. And against common perception, that, that, that old phrase, that you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Scripture argues the opposite. When, when we're anchored in that future hope, it does impact the way we live here on earth. We're not just walking around in dreamland, unaware of life, but we're able to take life head on because our hope is so secure and our hearts are so nourished and full of this future grace that's coming our way. We could say so much more, but we're told to be ready, to be hopeful, and the third command is to be holy. Verses 14 and 15 provide a contrast for the Christian. He says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So you used to live this way, 
there's all kinds of desires running rampant and involved in pursuing your sinful passions. And he says, don't be conformed that way. Here's how I want you to live. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. He quotes Leviticus. There's at least three different places in Leviticus where God told the people of Israel, be holy as I am holy. Now, holy is a word that is, I don't know, what comes into your mind when you, you think of the word holy. If, you, if your mind goes to Scripture, if you think of God's nature and character in Isaiah chapter 6, and that, that story, or if, if is, especially as you think about us being holy and what it means if you've ever met someone you thought was holy, Sometimes it can have some negative connotations, I think, especially in the mind of unbelievers, but even in our minds. Maybe we think of a religious zealot or some joyless, stuffy, goody-goody. Or maybe holiness to us is like sort of this optional add-on hobby uh, that, that is for like the really serious Christians. It may be that we need to recover from bad versions of what it means to be holy. Holy is never, ever, ever just about avoiding the don'ts. Stop doing this. Knock it off. Don't go there. Don't talk to them. Holiness, and I I love this definition I read this week. Holiness, to be holy, means to be wholly devoted. To be holy means to be wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted. To be totally devoted, to be separated unto God. We kind of understand this a little bit. Uh, We don't usually use this phrase very often anymore, but uh, there was a day when marriage was described as holy matrimony. And what that indicated was that that husband and wife, as they came together in that marriage commitment, they were committing themselves to this new and unique marriage relationship and they were, they were separating from the, the, the bonds of being responsible to their parents. And they were now starting their own, their own family unit. And they were reserved for one another. There is this separateness that is pictured in that phrase, holy matrimony. Or some of your Bibles, if you, if you look on the spine, uh, mine says holy Bible. Or you may, we refer to it as the holy scriptures. What does that mean? We recognize that it's separate from other books, as good as they might be. I, I love reading, and there's so, so much great wisdom out there from godly men and women that have been put into, uh, uh, you know, hit the printing presses and put on our bookshelves. But we recognize that there is something separate about the Scriptures, that it's the revealed Word of God. It's the holy Word of God. Holiness means to be separate, to Live this life that's devoted to God. How about you this morning? Does that describe you? As someone who is devoted wholly to God? Now what it is not teaching, what holiness does not say for you and for me on this earth, is that we're going to be perfect. Because none of us are. We don't even come close. But you can live a holy life and still sin. The difference being that you're quick to repent. A holy person 
is it longs to be right with God, longs to walk with Christ, and is not going to be content when the Spirit of God or a fellow brother and sister points out sin or points out unholiness in their life. And they're going to be quick to say, you know what, thank you for letting me see that and coming to God in repentance. That's part of a holy life, being quick to repent. So he gives these three commands here that we're supposed to live out, but he also reminds us of the motivation or the power through these commands. So point number one should have been three commands, and I've got in here the same phrase again. This should be three motivations, three motivations to those commands. You see, holiness is not lived out in our easy, easy chair. Peter points forward to these three motivations to get us out of our chairs and heading in the right direction. It's easy to be, it's, it's fairly easy, much easier to be holy when you're not around people. That's why, that's why the New Testament is constantly exhorting us to love one another, to, to honor one another, to esteem others better than ourselves. Holiness gets challenged when we go out into the world, when we're around other believers, when we're around unbelievers and being persecuted. That's when it gets challenged. That's when it becomes so important that we're, we're resting our hope upon the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God and that future grace that will be revealed to us. So here are three, three motivations that I wrote down. The first is God's holy character. So verse 15 said, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. We're to look first and foremost to God. I was reading Tim Keller this week, and he started to help me think through some of this point right here. You see, God is, God is unlike us. We all have had some realm of life where we were around somebody who was just amazing at what they did. I remember talking to a guy one time, if you're a baseball fan, you know that one of the, one of the at least one of the perceived greatest shortstops of our generation is Derek Jeter uh, through the, from the Yankees. You can debate whether you think he was that great or not, but he was an incredible leader, and he was part of a number of World Series for the New York Yankees, and he grew up in the Kalamazoo area, and I met somebody once who would remember playing Little League with Derek Jeter when they were about 12 years old, and he said, even then, you could see, like, like we were not in the same class as this kid. Like, this, this kid played baseball in a way that we all just kind of stood back in awe. Like, he could do everything and was, was faster, a better hitter. The, I mean, he ended up playing shortstop in baseball, but nobody could hit him as a pitcher at that age. You could just tell that there was something special about this guy. So we've all been in various, maybe our own fields of work where you're like, okay, this person's fantastic. Maybe it was in academics at school or in college, uh, and you're like, this, this person is set apart. They are different. Well, sometimes we think of God like that, too. Whereas God's like us, but like the very best version. Like, he's always in the lead. And that's simply not true. Scripture doesn't picture God like that. God's separateness, God's holiness, means that he is wholly unlike us. He's completely transcendent in all his ways. That's why he could say in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. In your ways, they're not my ways. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As we're called 
to live holy lives. Our model, our example is to look to Jesus Christ and, and to the Spirit of God and God the Father, the triune God, and His set-apartness. One writer says to be holy means to be holy gods. It means no area of your life doesn't belong to Him. It means no priority of your life is not judged by Him. It means no part of your heart does not belong to Him. It means to be totally devoted. That's why the tithe was holy. Why was the tithe holy? Because it was completely used for God's work, completely used for God's use. It was totally at God's disposal. Because this kind of life is impossible on our own, we must look to God. On the one hand, one writer says, this seems to set an impossible standard. How in the world can we be like a holy God? On the other hand, there's this marvelous simplicity and a holiness patterned on God himself. It does not require this encyclopedic grasp of endless directives and prohibitions. It flows from the heart. You see, the key is love. To be holy is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We imitate the love of grace that saved us, the love of God's compassion poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, to be holy doesn't mean that we're to set our minds on all the things we've got to do and not do. It's to set our mind on God and who He is and His tremendous love that has flowed out from us, out toward us. And from that, from that place can spring a holy life. The first motivation is God's holy character. The second we'll just mention briefly for the sake of time, but it's God's impartial judgment. It's God's impartial judgment. In verse 17, he says, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct your lives in reverence during your time living as strangers. Notice what he says here. He makes a connection between us living with reverence, so that's that living a holy life, but he connects it with, with calling upon a God who is a judge. How does that factor into motivation for holiness? We remember from like 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 that we're going to be one day before the judgment seat of Christ. This passage reminds us, it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Holiness. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he's done in the body whether good or evil. We're reminded as believers that we'll stand before God, and I don't know exactly what that judgment's going to look like. We're already, we're already there. We've been, for, at this stage, we've forgiven for our sins, and so we're not going to be like trying to convince us to let him into his presence. But there still will be a judgment based on our works as believers. And Peter here uses God's impartial judgment as a reminder to be holy, as a motivation for holiness. And then finally, he points to Christ's precious sacrifice. In the last verses of these, this section, you see, Peter knew that, Peter knew that, that there's no amount of strong-arming, no amount of verbal lashing that's, that was going to motivate 
a lasting spirit of holiness in God's people. I've seen and sat under pastors who rant and rail and give guilt trips. Uh, I have a family member who is, uh, who's, who's in the process of looking for another church because they're just like, Man, I'm just so tired of being reminded how much of a failure I am every week, every Sunday morning in church, like how badly I don't measure up and how I should be doing more. And you see, Peter here is not doing that with, with God's people. It's not like there's two options, either verbally abuse and beat down and, uh, and shame, or just live whatever life you want to. Like, there's, there's other options here in the middle, and Peter says, I want you to live holy. I don't want you to go over here and live in your former manner of living I'm also not going to just sit here and tell you, knock it off. Get your act together. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to point you to Jesus. I want you to keep your eyes upon Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. He closes this section with the gospel. It's not just rules, my brothers and sisters. And this is such, it may seem like such a small differentiation. It may just seem like a small little add-on. But it's gigantic. It's the difference between laboring under the the weight of the law, trying to make yourself acceptable to God by your just plain old working yourself to the bone. It's the difference between that and the difference between a, a joyful, empowered obedience that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's the difference between me and Jesus. It's the difference between my abilities and what Christ has done and the Spirit's power. It makes all the difference. I heard this verse quoted over and over again. Be holy because God's holy. And when you take that by yourself, by itself, you may, you may be a hard worker, you may be a eager, motivated person and say, all right, let's go do it. Let's be holy. But if it's not fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, rooted in the gospel, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, your life will be a constant one, number one, of ups and downs because we can't keep it up all the time. And number two, it will be this constant wondering of where you stand with Jesus. If you have a pretty good day, and you're feeling okay. Like maybe God's okay with you coming and talking to him at the end of the day because you did your devotions, you managed not to swear at work, and you were nice to your kids, and you did all right. But on those days when you didn't do so good, you want to kind of avoid God a little bit more. You want to kind of slink quietly around knowing that you didn't quite measure up and that maybe tomorrow will be a little bit better. But this gospel-rooted call to holiness is anchored in what Jesus has done. It says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. By the way, what a reminder. When we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to wander from holiness, Remember the emptiness 
of your former way of life. I love it where Romans 6 says, Paul says to the Roman Christians, he said, what fruit did you have from those things of which you're now ashamed? The way that you used to live, where, where's the fruit from those, those seeds you planted, those trees? What kind, of, what kind of fruit did they bear? He says, you were redeemed from that empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. But you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold. When you and I go to the store and buy something, whether we've got a, a card or we break out the, the cold hard cash, that we're, we're using something valuable to exchange and, and, and get something, some goods or services in exchange for this valuable currency, somewhat valuable currency. And he says, but that's not how you were bought. You weren't bought with silver and gold. He says, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last days. And he finishes with this glorious verse 21. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As Peter challenges us and Really, it's God through these words challenges us and calls us to holiness, calls us to Christ-like living. Let us forever remain anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So here's what that looks like. As you get up tomorrow morning, first of all, it's, it's your motivation. I, I, I want to live like Christ, but we're not doing it to earn his favor. Does this make sense? You're not doing it to make yourself acceptable to him. You're doing it because he gave his own blood and you are acceptable to him. He delights in you as his child. He is gone, like Romans 8 says, he's gone to the greatest lengths possible. He says it what can separate us from the love of God? If, if, God did not, if God did not spare his only son, how will he not freely give you all things? If, if God went as far as anyone could go to bring you into his family, to save you, to redeem you, to, to make you born again to a living hope, then there's nothing you and I can do that's going to make him more pleased, more delighted in you. How freeing is that? When he then says, okay, be holy as I'm holy. I want you to live for me. Don't live to achieve that, but live out of that. Because Jesus has said, it is finished. We can go forward and live out of holiness. And when we do sin, when we do things that are unholy, when we think thoughts or say things or go places or whatever it is that are unholy, we come to him in repentance his blood has covered that, and we can keep going forward. My brothers and sisters, may we have a passion for holiness. May we long to live a life pleasing to him. Not so that he'll love us, but because he already does. Not so that we can impress him, but because Jesus has gone to the cross and God has given us his Holy Spirit 
So not only do we have the motivation, but the power to walk with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, bring us back to the gospel over and over again. May the good news never become old news to us. Give us a passion for holiness. Not of rule keeping, but a pursuit of the character that you long to form within us. May our eyes be fixed upon you, O God, in all of your glory, in your holiness in your Son's sacrifice, and in your Spirit's equipping power. May our eyes be drawn and focused upon, drawn to and focused upon the triune God. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to encourage you, if, if you want to pray for anything or have any reason, to just come spend some time um, and linger a little bit to talk to God. We've got some folks up here who would love to pray with you. Before you go, let me share with you this benediction. The Lord is faithful, who will strengthen you and keep you from the evil one. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love God has for you and into the steadfastness Christ gives you. May God bless you as you pursue holiness.